The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. At the beginning of this week, global stock markets had another wobble amid fears about the economic outlook and aggressive rate hikes by the Federal Reserve and other central banks. Aidan Donnelly of Davy and Omber Kennedy of the Irish Times will join me shortly to give their take on the outlook. Later in the show, Laura Slattery of the Irish Times will join me to discuss plans by Netflix and Disney to introduce advertising to their global streaming platforms. So what will the cost implications be for subscribers? And will some customers simply tune out? But we'll start with the latest decline in global stock markets, which saw the S&P 500 drop by 2% on Monday for its worst performance in two months. Markets across Europe are also down, with tech stocks in particular taking another big hit in valuations. Meanwhile, Citigroup this week forecasts that UK inflation could hit an eye-watering 18% this year, and there are fears that the Eurozone will slip into recession. Aidan Donnelly of Davy and Omber Kennedy of the Irish Times join me to discuss these issues, and I began by asking Aidan to explain the reasons behind the latest wobble in stock markets. I think taking Monday in, in isolation, you're not really getting an idea for what's going on. Um, if you really trace this back to the start of the summer, when obviously stock markets were very weak through the, the month of June, they rallied very strongly in the month of July and continued into August. Um, and a lot of people, I suppose, uh, t- took the view that the the rally we saw in July was basically the market completely turning around in terms of what it expected and and no longer being worried about a recession, no longer being worried about inflation and that the the Fed were going to pivot early next year and start reducing rates and things like that. I I ultimately think that that is the wrong conclusion to come from the market activity in July. And we can talk a bit further about what I do think is going on. But I think what you're going to see now is uh, between now and probably the end of the month, you're going to have more of this kind of one day volatility. And really the, the root cause of everything that's been going on since probably the end of May is a classic summertime lull in volumes. So there's no volume being traded in many of these markets. All right. So you can get you know, some a small amount of players deciding to make a bit of a move in the market and it has a disproportionately large impact on the market on any one day or any one week. Now, I think the, 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 the key to the, the, the month of July was exactly that. And, and, and what happened is you basically had investors coming into July having, you know, the market's been down significantly in June. There was a hugely negative sentiment running all the way through markets. Positioning was very negative. There was huge short positions out in the market, uh, both from the hedge funds and what would be called the traditional long only investors had an awful lot of cash. And then as we came through July, I think a lot of the the kind of more momentum guys and the, and the short term hedge funds, they'd been short the market since the start of the year. They'd made an awful lot of money. They wanted to go on holidays. And lo and behold, what do you do? You start closing out some of your short positions. But the problem was they were trying to close out short positions in a market where there wasn't much trading going on and therefore they, you saw a short squeeze up. And the reason you kind of know it, it that it, it, it's that rather than a big sea change in, in, in attitudes by investors is the type of stocks that rallied in, um, in, in July and the amount of trading we saw in the S&P futures and in the Euro stocks futures. So the hedge funds typically use the futures much more to make those big kind of moves as, um, 
in terms of asset allocation. So you saw huge short positions getting closed out. Now, not necessarily the market going, you know, with these hedge funds going long, but just some of those short positions getting uh, closed out. And as I said, low, vol- low volumes in the markets just squeeze things out of, out of all proportion. I think we're still in that low volume uh, type of a market. So when you think about the next couple of weeks, I think this is, you know, it's going to be bits and pieces of news out. Everybody's focusing on Jackson Hole this weekend. I don't think there's anything major going to come out of that, but it's going to be, in the absence of anything else, it's going to be hyper analyzed. And then some people might make a move in terms of, you know, positioning. And suddenly, again, you can have these big days where up days and down days. A long answer to a short question. <laughs> Indeed. How much of it is down to concerns about slowdown in China and uh, particularly concerns around the Chinese uh, property market? Because there's a lot of dollar debt there, isn't there? And um, it looks like there's going to be severe losses. Look, I think it is a concern. Uh, But the problem is, you know, when you see a big move like we saw on Monday, there's an awful lot of post-event rationalization going on. They kind of they look for what the trigger was. They go, oh, well, it must be that. Right. And, you know, yes, it's certainly there is a concern out there. Um, is it one that hits the market two and a half percent? You know, if the, if the news comes out in, a, in April or May or in October or November, when there's plenty of volume going to the market. No, it isn't. But in the absence of volume, these type of, you know, and, and when you have a set of, of investors, a small set of investors operating in the market, number one, and number two, you know, them hanging on every morsel of information that's going to possibly come out uh, from from any source to try to to form a view on you just get the you know any one data point suddenly having a, you know a, a, an unusually large significance it would seem by the, the the move in the market and we've had another little surge in the dollar haven't we Aidan uh, which has uh, gone past parity now with the euro what's behind that yeah, I think there's a few things. One is definitely, you know, what, what you've got to remember is the foreign exchange market is far more liquid all year round than equity markets or bond markets. So why? Because actually very few people use it as a an, an investment market. Most of it is actually transactional. You know, if you if you do a deal with a foreign, a foreign company somewhere, you have to pay in dollars or whatever. So there's an awful lot of transactional stuff. So we don't tend to see those kind of low volume um, markets in the same way in, 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 the, in, in, in foreign exchange. And there is obviously a very long dollar position out there. Uh, a lot of investors, you know, got spooked about the market early on in, in the year and continued into the first, most of the first half. And, and when the market is worried, typically they kind of flock towards the dollar. And I think the other thing that's important about the, that that's given strength to the dollar has been the strength we've seen in commodity prices and, and energy prices so far this year. If you think about it, commodities and energy, both priced in dollars. So as, as countries, if you take even the likes of the G4, so Japan, US, Europe, things like that, or Germany and, and the UK, what you know as as uk germany and 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 japan are seeing demand for commodities and 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 energy products increasing the price of these are increasing they're priced in dollars so these countries have to buy more dollars to pay for what they need to use and there again it's another large kind of demand for dollars globally and that's kind of i think what's 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 pushed the, uh, the 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 dollar strong over the last while and i think the other thing too just going back to the simple simple economic class is you know this whole idea of purchasing power parity and, and interest rate differentials that's what we're also seeing in terms of the likelihood of US interest rates going up more than European interest rates. 
um, and staying higher for longer means that there's just a kind of a, a natural arbitrage to push the, the, the dollar higher. Umber Kennedy, we had a figure out uh, earlier in the week, a forecast for UK inflation, uh, putting it at more than 18% uh, for later this year, which was uh, an eye-watering number, rather a sober number, if you like. And UK inflation is uh, is running at uh, double digit already. Um, what's behind that? And how might that spill over into the Eurozone and into the Irish economy? Yeah, it was certainly a very eye-catching figure, 18.5%. It, it sort of puts us right back into the kind of oil price shocks of the 70s. And with the industrial unrest in the UK, the economy there really does look like it's it's a throwback to the 1970s. Now, a lot of the, the, the reason why UK inflation seems to be higher than everywhere else has been put down to Brexit. Brexiteers obviously dispute this. So there's an element of, you know, squeezed labour market is, is just a little bit, uh, you know, tighter in the UK. And then the cost of importing various goods has been higher. So that's that's kind of inflated their inflation. But nonetheless, the Citibank's forecast did put it down to energy prices and we're all afflicted by that. So you can't help wondering just how much of that double digit figures might, you know, we might we meet here. It's difficult to know. I mean, the Irish inflation rate, or just over 9%, is, is probably going to get higher, maybe in the short term. It has been shadowing the euro area rate pretty closely, and that's not predicted to go anywhere near as high as 18%. But nonetheless, the inflation outlook doesn't seem to be improving despite the ECB's first uh, rate hike last month. So, um, you know, it, it, it really just is such an uncertain backdrop at the moment. And we have like um, the ECB predicting maybe, uh, you know, that the, the outlook hasn't improved. And then we have maybe data from the US suggesting core inflation may be slowing, which is a positive. But it's so uncertain and not least because Russia's action via energy and the Ukraine is impossible to predict at, at the current, uh, you know, juncture. And concerns that the Eurozone is going to slip into recession later this year, I suppose we're... We seem to be, uh, at the moment, somewhat sheltered from fears over recession by the fact that we have such strong exports of uh, pharma products and medical devices and such like. But uh, first of all, what are the chances of the Eurozone going into recession and what are the chances of Ireland being dragged down as well? Well, pretty high now. I think a, a small majority of economists now are talking about a mild recession across the Eurozone in the final quarter of this year and first quarter of next year. Ireland, because of its peculiar um, you know, GDP figures officially won't enter into recession on any level this year. And even if we go back to modified domestic demand, which is a, a sort of more accurate measure of the underlying conditions, that had such a bounce in the first quarter that the whole year figure is probably still going to be positive. But of course, the big, you know, the big eyesore, the big hurt is, you know, the squeeze on household budgets. And that's going to be the difference between income growth and inflation. And that gap seems to be getting wider I mean, household bills look like they're going up on average by about 3000 per household this year, which is just, you know, unprecedented in the last few decades, you know. And we've got big ticket items like energy, food and transport all ticking up. And now we've got, uh, you know, incoming interest rate rises, which are going to hit mortgage holders. So, you know, the real feel in the economy um, is going to be very different than what the GDP figures are telling us. And up till recently, up till about June this year, we were still, you know, looking at a kind of bounce back from COVID. Um, uh, consumer spending was pretty untrammeled by the squeeze on household incomes. That's changed a bit now. The June retail figures showed a downturn, and that might be the first time we're seeing now this squeeze on household incomes. 
Um, we'd built up a lot of savings. Households had built up a lot of savings during the pandemic. They've probably run a lot of them down. So now we're, we're getting into the real meat of the issue. And of course, we're going into the winter season, which is going to mean um, heating bills going up. So the next few months are, are going to be a real tricky period um, uh, for the economy. You know, uh, it's estimated that, you know, real incomes were, are probably increasing by three or four percent. Uh, the RSI said inflation is likely to average seven percent uh, this year. I'd say they're going to upgrade that figure. So we're looking at a squeeze four or five percent on real incomes, which actually takes us back to the, you know, the post financial crisis era. So it's 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 going to be um, if it's going to feel like a recession for a lot of households. I, I think there's just Karen, there's two things that are, are, are worthy of note in that. And the first one is, and Owen kind of alluded to it, the, the ECB is in, in a bit of a pig in a poke here because on the one hand, they have to fight inflation, but the tools that they have to fight inflation are absolutely no use in the inflation that they have to fight, right? So putting up interest rates makes no difference to the energy prices. Putting up interest rates makes no difference to supply chain constraints that have been going on in, in the economy, right? So the, the, to a large extent, the ECB are a bit like a, a workman arriving up for a job and, and he has a, a bag full of screwdrivers, but he actually needs a spanner, right? And, and, and they're kind of caught in, in, in that regard. I think the other thing too, from a, from a more domestic perspective, you know, I think the, you know, the likes of the retail sales numbers may well come down, but I, I think what's important to actually think about as we go through the summer, you know, anecdotally, what's been happening, and, and to a certain extent, we've seen it in the US too, that people have moved, you know, consumers have moved their spending on products, spending on services. Now, in the case of the Irish uh, population, what you will tend to find is through the summer months, that means an awful lot of people have gone abroad on holidays. And, and like, you only have to see the, the disaster at the airport through June, July and August to know there was an awful lot of people out there. So I think, you know, to, to look at the retail sales only and say that this could be problematic or, or signs of, uh, or symptoms of a slowdown in consumer spending, it might just be that this consumer spending has been done elsewhere and then actually it's, it's not necessarily indicative of, of poor consumer sentiment um, in, in terms of what they're spending the money on and where they're spending. Okay, I suppose we'll have to wait for um, some more data to come through before we can we can be sure about that. But what about uh, mortgage interest rates, um, Aidan? What's your view on what the ECB will do next on interest rates? We had a half a percentage point increase in July. Um, tracker mortgage holders uh, will have felt that, but uh, otherwise it wasn't really passed on by the main high street banks. Uh, but the next one might be. What, what do you think the ECB will do next? Well, again, I think the, the, the problem that the ECB have is that they know that the, the, the interest rates aren't going to solve the problem that they've got, right? And to a large extent, they run the risk if they put up interest rates too much of really putting the economy, uh, the European economy into a tailspin and into a recession. And I think ultimately you look at Europe right now, you know, Certainly a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you would have said that, you know, there's a, the real chance of a recession comes if the natural gas is turned off. Now I think we've got a problem that, you know, even with the drip feed that's getting, get coming through in terms of storage levels, we're probably not going to have enough natural gas to get through. And that has knock on impacts for manufacturing, particularly in the likes of Germany. So is there a chance that you could get a mild recession, even if the natural gas isn't completely switched off? I think that's becoming more and more likely. So again, the, the, 
the, the, the ECB are kind of caught here in that, you know, they can't really be seen to be jacking up interest rates when the economy is going into a recession, even though, you know, on, on the face of it, the inflation still looks very, very strong. So, you know, they've definitely moved. They, they did 150 basis point. Whether that was kind of a sop to the market to say, OK, look, here you go. We've given you we're, we're trying our best on inflation. But here you go. Um, I don't know. And, you know, maybe it means that they've maybe got to go, go again just to prove their credentials. But again, I think the issue is they're kind of pushing on the string here because it's not going to have any impact at all on inflation, but, you know, increasing interest rates. And again, they're, they're really only moving it at the margin, you know, 50 basis points. You look how far this, the, the Federal Reserve has gone over the last 12, 18 months. And relative to what the the the, the ECB has, there's, there's still this massive differential between two central banks. Yeah, but are you suggesting that the ECB won't move aggressively? Because I think there is a view out there, isn't there, that they will have to. And we've seen the Bank of England move much more aggressively as well in terms of of rates. Now, mind you, still still very low by historical standards, but still they've they've moved a long way in a short space of time. Yeah, but the problem that the ECB have is they know it's not going to do the, the the risk of going too hard is you have a domestic economy that even before this wasn't particularly strong, right? And the inflation that's been generated is not because of strong domestic demand, it's because of two extraneous factors. So, you know, what is achieved by the ECB going and jacking up interest rates by another 1%? The only thing it does is impacts economic growth at a time that they can ill afford that. I think the UK is a very different matter. And, and quite frankly, the UK, you know, it, it, what's happened in the UK is a product of their own own, own actions, particularly around Brexit. As, as Owen said, they may not like to admit it, but the dogs on the street know exactly what's going on. Um, and, you know, not just in terms of the increase in, in, in prices of, of imports, but also the availability of labour. All of that is pushing up domestic uh, inflation in the UK that, you know, the only way, the only chance they have is by increasing interest rates. And that's why they've done that. But they're doing that in the full and, and stated knowledge that they're putting the economy into a recession. Umber Kennedy, we have a budget coming up in late September. A lot of calls being made on the government to introduce measures to help people cope with the cost of living crisis that a lot of families are experiencing right now. What are you expecting from the budget? Well, naturally, you know, the government have already flagged a 6.7 billion figure. Half of that is already taken up by, you know, agreed um, spending. So we have about a three, three point five billion for um, kind of new and additional measures. So I think there's one basic point you can say about the public finances is the government has significant room for kind of once off measures because taxes are very buoyant at the moment. So you can expect to see, uh, you know, once off hikes in the fuel allowance, working family payment, probably a double uh, welfare payment. All those uh, won't kind of top up into permanent expenditure increases. I suppose where you'd see a constraint is, you know, when it comes to permanent spending measures, you know, for a variety of reasons, in, in not least demographic spending, you know, climate spending and various different investments, the government is, is pretty tied and interest rates are rising as well. So, you know, the cost of borrowing is increasing. So on one level, the, the government has a certain amount of fiscal headroom for once-off measures. It's tied... Um, not massively, but a little bit uh, when it comes to permanent spending. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to see, obviously, a focus on household, but it's not going to satisfy many people. And it's, it's, it's going to be small in the context of, you know, household spending and budgets rising by approximately three grand this year. 
So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see a few different measures, but it's likely the government are gonna be, you know, criticized heavily by the opposition for not doing enough, as you'd expect. Aidan Donnelly, talking about the opposition, Sinn Fein obviously riding high in the polls at the moment, uh, which are suggesting that if there was an election tomorrow, um, Sinn Fein will be uh, very central to the next government. Uh, a long way to go, obviously, until election day. But we have seen some um, policy papers from Sinn Fein uh, recently. I'm just wondering whether global uh, investors are are sort of waking up to the fact that Sinn, Sinn Fein could be in government here, and whether they are in any way spooked by that. I don't think it's probably on the first page of worries that global investors have right now, to be quite honest with you, when, when everything else that is going on. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, I suppose the, 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 the mindset of global investors tends to be, I worry about a problem when it becomes a problem, not prior to it, because, you know, and, and like we, you know, we, we, we've seen it even in stuff that's close to hand, you know, like the, 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 the market's worry about what's going on in Ukraine is very limited, you know, other than the impact it might have on grain and it might have on, on, on natural gas. Other than that, it doesn't really uh, care what's going on in, in Ukraine. And it would tend to be the same. So, you know, from my sense of, of talking to international investors, most of them, you know, this this won't be a problem for it's not a problem they'll even think about, I'd say, until we are six months away from from the next general election. All right. We leave it there. Aidan Donnelly of Davy and Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times. Thank you for joining Inside Business. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Laura Slattery about plans from Netflix and Disney to use advertising on their global streaming platforms. Back in a few moments. With increasing pressures, Ireland CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, Netflix and Disney have both flagged plans to introduce advertising on their streaming platforms. While it holds out the possibility of generating significant new revenues for them, it also runs the risk of turning people off their services. Laura Slattery of the Irish Times has been writing about this, and I asked her to begin by explaining Netflix and Disney's rationale for introducing advertising to their platforms. So Netflix and Disney Plus have both announced that they are going to carry advertising probably from 2023, although in the US this could happen as soon as December this year for Disney. Now, the whole way they're approaching this is that people who want to avoid ads will be paying more for their subscriptions. And in Disney's case, it's likely that they will have to pay more than they're currently paying. Whereas in Netflix's case, at the moment, it looks like there will be a cheaper plan on offer that does include ads. So there's two different approaches there and it'll be up to consumers to re-decide are they willing to tolerate the annoyance, I suppose we could call it, of advertising and to, to what extent they are prepared to put up with it. Of course, some people might actually choose to just exit both services um, rather than keep on paying either for no ads or the cheaper version with ads. Yeah, actually, on that point, in a cost of living crisis, you would think that people would be looking at their subscriptions across the board, whether it's to a streaming service or, a, you know, a news provider like ourselves or the New York Times or, or others. 
um, or indeed, you know, any of the other Spotify or any of those other subscription services out there. So has there been any signal so far this year that that's actually taking place, that people are really cutting back on their subscriptions? It's really hard to get up to date data on that. But certainly at the start of the year, there was a big concern that there would be a much higher churn rate for all sorts of subscriptions. And I think we can probably attribute a bit of that to the wobble that Netflix had in its subscriber growth earlier this year. Now, perhaps some of the concern about that was a little bit overdone, but, um, you know, the, the share price has tanked this year and it's it's tanked for a reason, I would say. And that is, in fact, one of the reasons that's leading Netflix to do a little bit of a U-turn on advertising and saying, this is where we can get our next revenue growth from. This is what we need to do because we can't rely on the market growing at the same rate that it has done over the past decade. Netflix, of course, is a huge success story. It has 221 million subscribers and it's probably inevitable that that market was going to mature slightly. Now, Disney Plus is in a different situation. Disney in general has long you know experience with advertising through its uh, linear channels in the US and also its sports network ESPN which has its own subscriber platform as well as Hulu which it controls in the US so Disney has gone gangbusters on Disney Plus since its launch and that has 152 million subscribers now so it's really kind of fast catching up at Netflix and if you add in the other two services worldwide it actually has more subscribers than Netflix but it too needs to look to the future and see where can we go next with this and it, it believes it has a very attractive offer to advertisers and it looks like it's going to be first to market with this as I said in the US in December they are indicating that Disney Plus with ads is going to cost $7.99 a month, which is currently the price of the ad-free Disney that currently exists. And without ads, if you want to avoid ads, you'll be paying $10.99 a month, which is an increase of $3 a month. And you're right to say that's probably not ideal timing in the middle of a recession to do this or on the cusp of a recession. But it can probably build up quite a substantial advertising business from the, the many people who do subscribe to the version with ads. And at the same time, there's a kind of a core diehard group of individuals who consume Marvel content and Star Wars content on Disney Plus at quite a, a high volume and high rate. And they may well keep paying the higher sum or rather put up with the uh, price increase in order to, to have a kind of the pure experience. Yeah, it's interesting that they seem to be pursuing different strategies because, as you mentioned, Netflix is indicating that it could be, you know, an ad service basically could be cheaper than uh, what people are, are currently paying for uh, for their basic service. Yes. Now, there's a lot we don't know about what Netflix is going to do, but it's worth mentioning that they, they only put up their prices in Europe earlier this year. So at the moment, you can get basic Netflix for €8.99, which is actually at the same price as the monthly Disney Plus at the moment in Europe. But the standard one, which is what a lot of people would have because it allows more than one device, is fourteen ninety nine a month. And the premium is twenty ninety nine a month. So those are quite high rates. So you could say it's coming in lower than that, at least we think, for the ad-supported Netflix in the new year, possibly anyway, in 2023. That's the plan, early 2023, according to their co-chief executive, Reed Hastings. So... It may well appeal to people, especially as people do, I think, 
dip in and out of Netflix subscriptions probably a lot more than they do some other ones because it's just so easy to do so. So they might come back, shall we say, to Netflix if there's a, you know, a program on it that they, they think they like and just put up with the advertising, which we don't know anything about what that, what's that going to look like. Is it just going to be on the menu screen? Is there going to be a lot of pre-roll advertising, as we call it, before the, the program? Is there going to be a lot of mid-roll, you know, basically commercial breaks, but video on demand style? And, you know, how long will they run for? Will they be non-skippable? Um, thinking is that Disney Plus's ads will be non-skippable. And we see at the moment from the video on-demand players that uh, all the broadcasters operate, that there's a kind of a mix of skippable and non-skippable. And I have to say, <laughs> I, I like a bit of a skippable option myself, even if I have to watch one 30-second ad and maybe a bit of another one, say, uh, for example. I find that psychologically much more appealing than having to sit through, you know, four full 30 second ads without any skip option whatsoever. But as broadcasters and media companies all around the place will will tell you, um, you can't perhaps make as much money off that kind of model. So there's a there's a balance to be struck there. You know, you don't want to put people off, but at the same time, you need to make money. Yeah, I see some uh, Wall Street analysis uh, suggesting that Netflix could add 4.3 million subscribers in the US and, and Canada in 2023 through this new advertising model. And Morgan Stanley is suggesting that it could make uh, $7 a month in terms of extra revenue per subscriber from advertising. So clearly this is uh, something that could uh, generate a lot of money for, for somebody like Netflix. And I just wonder whether, you know, a lot of parents might be subscribing to Disney or Netflix for their kids, because there's a lot of content on both um, that obviously appeal to children and and maybe it's a good way to keep them occupied at certain times of the day. So I just want to, you know, they, they mightn't have a resistance to, to, to ads and their children having to watch ads if there's a cheaper uh, option available to them. Yeah, I think it's likely that there will be different rules about advertising on children's content than there is on uh, content aimed at adults. I mean, that's the case anyway for, for broadcast television. So I think this is what these companies are going to do because they are very conscious of, of those um, kind of reputation issues. And there's another whole side of this issue to do with privacy. And they want to be able to offer advertisers a certain amount of targeting, but they don't want to make the mistakes perhaps that the likes of Meta have made in the past. So we see it at the moment that there is a huge potential for, for Disney Plus and Netflix to really elbow themselves into this video um, advertising market. And as you know, I think I mentioned there's a huge scale there. They, they come to the market with huge scale to, to start with. And it has actually been like the one crumb of comfort, I think, to broadcasters that though they're losing, you know, some eyeballs, especially amongst younger viewers to these streaming services, they had the silver lining in, in, the, of in the fact that they weren't involved in the advertising market and Netflix in particular didn't seem to be particularly keen on it for a long time. So... This is all new and there's probably going to be a period of testing, you know, with the technology. Um, Netflix has signed up at Microsoft. Disney has a partnership with the, what's called a demand side platform called the Trade Desk that a lot of media agencies will be familiar with. So it might not take too long, but obviously they won't want to make any mistakes because they'll be hugely, hugely visible. Laura, what about the potential impact on, let's say, RTE and Virgin Media in the Irish market? Because obviously they're selling advertising uh, into the market for their linear TV programmes. 
So just wondering, is this another cannibalization of the advertising market? Well, it's really a kind of complicated picture at the moment because perhaps uh, counterintuitively linear television advertising is doing really well. And that's despite the fact that, you know, in Ireland, um, the audiences are declining. Um, figures there recently from the media agency Core, which showed that adult um, viewing is down 8% in the first half of 2022 compared to the first half of 2021, which was in turn down on, on 2020. Now, in 2020, there had been a brief uptick in viewing for sure because of um, the first lockdown. Uh, but really, we can see that there's a path of declining viewership there at the moment. But what's not happening is a decline right now in linear television advertising. Things are going actually really well. And actually, Core has a forecast that that you know, entire television advertising market in Ireland, in the Republic, will hit about 276 million this year. And that's up 44 million on 2019. So it's growing, it's pent up demand from advertisers. They know they can reach a particularly lar large audience, you know, in one kind of go, especially when they're, they're advertising within, say, sports, live sport. Love Island is being a real bright spot for Virgin Media Television as well. So that's going really well, despite the decline in viewership. And it's almost not quite the opposite, I would say, for their video on demand, you know, their players. But certainly the commercial potential of that seems to be only nudging up from, from what I can tell. It's the whole market there is a fraction of what they would get on linear. But the actual rates of viewership are going you know, extremely well. You know, RTE, for example, it's up 60%, the views and the player. And what's happening here is that more viewers are looking at the players through their television screen rather than other devices like laptops and um, iPads, mobiles, which is great for advertisers because it implies that that more than one person is, is watching. It's almost like the old traditional TV model. There's a room full of people <laughs> looking at RTE player or, you know, Virgin Media Television On Demand sitting on the sofa in the living room and you're hitting more than one audience potentially at once. So they are kind of growing that business. And I, I would say it's particularly unhelpful that the, uh, Netflix and Disney Plus and, and let's face it, there's, there's others as well going around the place crowding, you know, the market are now doing this and there's a lot of competition. And this is in an online advertising market where, you know, about a third of online advertising revenues are, are video. And, but like Meta really is the big player there and YouTube, which is obviously Google's video app. And they themselves would be worried about uh, competition from the likes of TikTok. So there's quite a fierce battle out there for eyeballs at the moment. And advertisers are going to just follow um, follow those eyeballs, you know, as long as the price is right. Yeah, I, I wonder will there be much resistance in this market to that? Because if you look at if you take RTE, if you're a regular viewer of RTE, for example, you're used to the ads. It's not like the UK where the BBC doesn't have ads. And you're paying a license fee. If you're law-abiding, at least you're paying a license fee. And the license fee is 160 quid a year. That's not insubstantial. It's over 13 quid a month. So it's it's kind of on a par with with um, uh, some of those subscriptions you mentioned earlier. So just just wondering, um, will, there, will there be a resistance to uh, advertising on Netflix and uh, Disney in the Irish market in the same way that the in a different way to let's say the UK where uh, people have a an ad free BBC service. I mean, I think advertisers will be weighing up, you know, the the annoyance factor a little bit. They'll they'll want a good environment to put their ads. 
But I think that's probably completely outweighed by the fact they know that there's there's this young audience watching these platforms. In fact, you know, there's a lot of young viewers who consume almost entirely um, their video consumption is through apps like this and they haven't um, darkened the door of a linear channel, you know, in quite some time. Um, I mentioned earlier that the uh, adult uh, viewing to linear channels in Ireland is down 8% in the first half of this year, but actually it's down almost 18% for 15 to 34-year-olds. So there's not really that much evidence to suggest that amongst that group, their total video consumption has dropped. It's rather that they're consuming it on other apps, other platforms. So at the end of the day, I think advertisers are going to follow those, um, you know, they're going to hunt them down, basically try and get their brands out to those audiences um, that they see as uh, customers for the future. But there is, I think there is a point about what people are used to when it comes to advertising. And there's a particularly kind of captive nature to this this advertising, especially, as I say, if it's not skippable. Like our generation, we grew up with ad breaks on RTE, as you mentioned, uh, Channel 4, ITV. But, you know, it was pretty easy just to flick over to another channel uh, while the ad break was on and then switch back. It's much more difficult to do that. On, on You effectively can't on video on demand because you'd have to start the whole process again. So in a way, these ads are more irritating and they can cause more frustration, you know, especially I think we all have the experience of, you know, an, a player app crashing on us and we've just watched four ads and then we've got to watch the same four ads again just to get the thing going. Um, and younger people too, maybe some of them just haven't really got any experience with, with advertising like that at all, you know, that just used to the, the skippable formats or just, you know, platforms that were previously advertising free. So there is going to be a kind of a learning curve, I think, as people kind of adjust to these um, messages. And probably one thing that would help is more um, shorter ads. That's something that some people in the industry have been calling for for years, not sticking with this 30 second uh, television standard, but having a quicker 10 second uh, blast instead or more often that might help uh, reduce frustration but it, there's definitely going to be, I think, a period of annoyance where people are, you know, weighing up their options, I would say. What about you, Laura? Are you a subscriber to Disney Plus or Netflix or both? Um, I have both. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So what's your plan? Are you going to are you going to price yourself to avoid these ads or are you happy to take ads? Well, I'll have to think about that when I know about the price. Like a lot of people, I'll, I'll wait and see what the prices are and <laughs> then I'll make up my mind. I will say, I mean, my experience, uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned here is that we don't know if there's going to be a loss of functionality. If, is there going to be limited functionality on the um, ad-supported cheaper versions of these products? You know, it's one thing paying less and thinking, well, I'll put up with ads as the price of that saving. But are you going to put up with like not being able to download shows so you can watch them offline? There's a lot of people who like to do that with Netflix, for example, if they're traveling. Um, and there was a report by Bloomberg last week that suggested that perhaps the um, ad supported version of Netflix, that the Netflix light, if you want to put it that way, wouldn't permit downloads. I mean, it's not out of the question either that they might hold back some content from the cheaper version of Netflix. So we'll have to wait and see those things. But my, my experience with this kind of choice in the past, as, as it will have been for many Irish people, is with Spotify. You know, you can pay 
money for Spotify, subscribe, and you've got all the functionality that you want. But if you want to access it for free, you've got to put up with shuffle mode, limited skips, a whole a host of other um, restrictions on how you use it. Now, there's no restrictions on content, but there's a lot of kind of hurdles that you will encounter if you're trying to pay nothing at all for Spotify. That's aside from the fact that there will be ad, ad interruptions every so often. So I've saved money there by not subscribing to Spotify. <laughs> Um, despite using it quite a lot. But that's something I'll have to, yeah, that's something I'll have to weigh up again for, for each one of these things. Um, or I could cancel, who knows. Yeah, sure, that's a decision a lot of people are going to have to make, I guess, uh, in the coming months. Laura Slattery of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Aidan Donnelly, Umber Kennedy and Laura Slattery. The show was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>